And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 39, The Liberty Bell and the Liberty Shofar. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1929, a remarkable scene unfolded in Philadelphia, which symbolized what America meant to the Jewish people and how Jewish ideas impacted America. Rabbi Joseph Isaac Schneerson, the sixth rabbinic leader of the Chabad Hasidic dynasty, visited the United States. He had not arrived to emigrate. That would occur only in 1940. Rather, he had come to speak about the crisis in which Jews in the Soviet Union found themselves. And he had also perhaps come to express his gratitude for he had himself been imprisoned by the Soviet regime for his efforts to preserve and propagate Jewish life. In fact, he had actually been sentenced to death, and it was the international outcry that had helped save him. One of those who had exerted himself on Rabbi Schneerson's behalf had been then-presidential candidate and now-president Herbert Hoover. Upon arriving in September of 29, Rabbi Schneerson declaimed, May the Almighty bless this country that has been such a refuge for our people. The rabbi met with Hoover at the White House, but the most interesting experience of all may have been in Philadelphia when he paid pilgrimage to the Liberty Bell, an object that links Leviticus to the American experiment. Chapter 25 begins with the spiritual cycle of Israelite agriculture, when every seven years all work in the fields ceases. Verse 3, Six years shalt thou sow thy field, and six years shalt thou prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. The Sabbath described here is somewhat similar to the weekly Sabbath. Every seventh year in the Holy Land, all agricultural labor is forbidden. It is a reminder of creation and of the Almighty's absolute ownership of the land. Seven cycles of these seven years take place, and then on the 50th year, a jubilee occurs. All indentured servants are freed, and Israelites who had sold their ancestral lands have them returned. Verse 10, And ye shall hallow the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land. These are the words boldly emblazoned upon the bell in Philadelphia that was visited by the Hasidic leader. Thus, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency tells us in an article that, quote, more than a thousand Jews welcomed by Joseph Isaac Schneerson, who had been exiled from Russia at his arrival here, with the cry, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Police and the welcoming committee escorted him to Independence Hall, which the proscribed leader of Russian Jewry had expressed a wish to visit as the birthplace of American liberty. While guards with difficulty held back the crowd, the rabbi reverently placed a wreath on the Liberty Bell. End quote. If the bell had been chosen as the perfect emblem for a rabbi released from Soviet prison, it was surely, at least in part, because of what had served as the bell's scriptural source of inspiration. As Gary Nash describes in his very interesting book on the history of the Liberty Bell, 
from which I've learned a great deal and to which this talk is indebted. The bell had been created originally not in honor of the American Revolution, but long before. It had been ordered from England in 1751 for the Pennsylvania State House by Isaac Norris, Speaker of the Pennsylvania State Assembly, which was the most democratic assembly in the colonies and therefore perhaps the greatest embodiment of equality in the Western world at the time. To mark the milestone of 50 years since William Penn's original Charter of Liberties, Norris chose to make mention on the bell of Leviticus 25, which describes the Jubilee, the moment every 50 years when liberty is proclaimed in the land. Thus, the Liberty Bell captures the fascinating way in which the identification with biblical Israel lies at the earliest roots of the American story. As Nash puts it, quote, These words from the Bible, Leviticus 25th chapter, 10th verse, were freighted with social and political meaning. These were the words that would take on new layers of significance in different eras, in different contexts, and in different parts of the world. Little did the Bell's commissioners know what lay ahead for this biblical verse. Certainly they had no inkling that the Bell's peelings would echo down the centuries and take on a world-encircling power to affect the modern age, end quote. As Nash goes on to describe, the bell that had been created by a colony came to embody independence after 1776, and then it was turned into a sacred symbol for the abolitionist movement in the years leading up to the Civil War, thereby giving new meaning and application to the unfolding of biblical and American liberty. More, however, remains to be said. If you look at the context of the original obligation of Jubilee, you will see that it was not by word of mouth or the ringing of a bell that liberty is proclaimed throughout the land. Rather, in the place of a liberty bell, what we find is a liberty shofar. Thus, we are informed in verse 9, right before the scriptural words emblazoned on the bell. Then shalt thou cause the shofar of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, On the Day of Atonement shall ye make the shofar sound throughout all your land. It was through the sounding of the shofar on the Yom Kippur of the Jubilee year that liberty was proclaimed. In fact, the Hebrew word for jubilee, yovel, itself means horn, indicating that the role the shofar played in proclaiming liberty was so central a ceremony that the cry of this ancient horn somehow itself summons us to freedom. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, usually for Jews, the shofar seems to symbolize, at least in our yearly ritual, something else entirely. The onset of the high holidays, a clarion call to repentance, the reminder that we stand under the judgment of God. What is considered the onset of the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah, is described earlier in Leviticus 23, as a Yom Zichron Truai, day remembering the shofar's wail. Here, in the context of the Jubilee year, the shofar is meant to connote human freedom. That the two shofars, of repentance and of liberty, are linked, can be discovered in the fact that it is specifically on Yom Kippur of the Jubilee year that liberty is declared, specifically on the Day of Atonement that the shofar is sounded to mark the jubilee. This somehow indicates that at least in some sense, liberty and repentance can go hand in hand. This in turn must mean that if freedom is itself a good and slavery an evil, it is because 
there is an extraordinary capacity for human freedom within each one of us as human beings. And that extraordinary capacity also makes itself manifest in repentance. Why is the shofar sounded on the high holidays? There are many explanations, but for Maimonides, it is intended as a wake-up call from God to us. We are, for Maimonides, spiritually asleep. What Maimonides means by this is that we are often ignorant throughout our lives of our true worth, of the extraordinary moral capacity with which God has bequeathed us, the power to impact and change our own lives and the world. But the correct response to our spiritual somnambulism is not despair, nor a mere acknowledgement of our ineptitude. If our failures are compared to slumber, then the solution provided by the shofar is waking up, approaching life with an inspired alacrity, driven by the knowledge of the moral and spiritual worth with which every human being is endowed. Startled into wakefulness, we realize the capacity that is within us, the freedom with which we are endowed. We are, in other words, awake to our potential. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik famously put it this way, quote, man is born as an object, dies like an object, but possesses the ability to live like a subject, an innovator who can impress his own individual seal upon his life. And Rabbi Soloveitchik further added that man's task in the world is to transform a passive existence into an active existence, an existence of compulsion into an existence replete with a powerful will, with resourcefulness, daring and imagination, end quote. We are now perhaps able to begin to understand how Rosh Hashanah's shofar call to repentance is not dissimilar entirely from the shofar proclaiming liberty during the year of Jubilee. The shofar of the 50th year is also a wake-up call to society to discover the image of God that lies within the human beings within that society. The annual shofar on Rosh Hashanah alerts each of us as individuals how to see ourselves. The shofar of Jubilee, like the Liberty Bells ring millennia later, alerts society to how we see each other, how we treat each other. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Jews on Rosh Hashanah, immediately after they sound the shofar, proclaim Hayom Harat Olam. Today we remember the creation of the world, meaning today we remember the creation of mankind. And it is the knowledge that God creates us in his image that is the source of the Jewish belief that we are free. And this is the foundation of the Jewish approach to liberty. Remarkably, the papers reported that Azerbaijan Schneerson in 1929 was about to place the wreath before the Liberty Bell. He said to all those who had come to see him, in what must have been accented English, quote, liberty based on faith is the most proper and the strongest, end quote. This is poignant, profound, and true. As we have argued in the past, it is the Bible that gave the world the notion that we are created in the image of God. And Abraham's revolutionary tale taught us that we are therefore also endowed with the awesome ability to change course in our lives and to chart the direction that our lives take. If the shofar is both a reminder of repentance and also a proclamation of human freedom, it is due to the fact that repentance is only possible because of the freedom and extraordinary spiritual capacity that we have been given. And, ladies and gentlemen, as we have also seen, 
The Bible teaches us that true freedom is not individual libertinism, but rather an embrace of all that lends life meaning. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land, and ye shall return every man to his family. The Liberty Bell reflects the link between the Bible and human freedom that is at the heart of the American idea. The notion that, as the rabbi put it, liberty based on faith is the most proper and the strongest. And the truth is that one who adopts a wholly materialist or unbiblical approach to existence can end up denying human freedom itself, which has happened not only in Abraham's time, but also in modernity. As the physicist Stephen Barr put it, quote, like the pagan of old, the materialist ends up subjecting man to the subhuman. The pagan supernaturalist did so by raising the merely material to the level of spirit or the divine. The materialist does so by lowering what is truly spiritual or in the divine image to the level of matter. The results are much the same. The pagan said that his actions were controlled by the orbits of the planets and stars. The materialist says they are controlled by the orbits of the electrons in his brain. The pagan bowed down to animals or the likenesses of animals in worship. The materialist avers that he himself is no more than an animal. The pagan spoke of fate. The materialist speaks of physical determinism. End quote. The wake-up call of the shofar is a demand to discover human freedom, founded on our creation in the Almighty's image, which is also the foundation of human equality. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is what is so interesting. Originally, the bell ordered by Isaac Norris was not known as the Liberty Bell, the verse emblazoned on it notwithstanding. It was called the State House Bell. As Nash notes, one of the most influential pieces of writing that affiliated the bell with the name of Liberty was a short story published in the 1840s by George Lippard, a story which described an elderly man in 1776 charged with ringing the State House Bell when independence was announced. An elderly man who was waiting for a young boy to bring him the news of the Continental Congress's declaration. The story is, alas, fiction. But, as a legend, it does contain a profound truth. Here are a couple of selections from it. In yonder wooden steeple which crowns the red brick statehouse stands an old man with white hair and sunburnt face. He is clad in humble attire, yet his eye gleams as it is fixed upon the ponderous outline of the bell, suspended in the steeple there. The old man tries to read the inscription on that bell, but cannot. Come here, my boy. You are a rich man's child. You can read. Spell me those words, and I'll bless ye, my good child. Proclaim liberty to all the land and all the inhabitants thereof. Look here, my child. Wilt do the old man a kindness? Then haste you downstairs and wait in the hall by the big door until a man shall give you a message for me. The crowds gathered more darkly along the pavement and over the lawn, yet still the boy came not. Ah, groaned the old man, he has forgotten me. These old limbs will have to totter down the statehouse stairs and climb up again. As the word was on his lips, a merry ringing laugh broke on the air. There, among the crowds on the pavement, stood the blue-eyed boy, clapping his tiny hands, while the breeze blowed his flaxen hair all about his face, and then swelling his little chest, he raised himself on tiptoe and shouted a single word. Ring! Do you see that old man's eye fire? Do you see that arm so suddenly bared to the shoulder? Do you see that withered hand grasping the iron tongue of the bell? The old man is young again. His veins are filled with new life. 
Backward and forward with sturdy strokes, he swings the tongue. The bell speaks out. So Lippert writes. And then he writes how even as a bell is often told in mourning, here it was rung in celebration and as a wake-up call for civilization. Quote, There is a terrible poetry in that sound. It speaks to us like a voice from our youth, like a knell of God's judgment, like a solemn yet kind remembrancer of friends now dead and gone. There is a terrible poetry in that sound at dead of night, but there was day when the echo of that bell awoke a world slumbering in tyranny and crime. End quote. It was this story that made the Liberty Bell into how it was known today. The bell is a wake-up call of human liberty, which roused a slumbering world. Lippard did not study Maimonides. He did not know that the verse emblazoned on the bell does indeed describe a wake-up call, one from a shofar rather than a bell, but a wake-up call nonetheless. The bell's verse is a testament to how the Hebrew Bible impacted America. But it also, as we approach the high holidays, reminds all of us what the shofar should mean to us today. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.